You're gonna throw that in the pit. You know we can't fly without this. We'd be screwed. What the hell is Going the matter with you? Going to the tropical zone is a bad idea. It's not safe for the baby. Really? What do you know that is safe for the we baby? We have to stay on this side of the planet. Where is this coming from? Huh? Who have you been talking to? Saul told me. What? At first I thought it was Mouse. But it's Saul. I can hear him. You can hear him? Not in my ears. In my head. Hi, I'm Holly Fry, and welcome to Raised by Wolves, the podcast, where groundbreaking minds discuss some of the real-life research behind the science featured in HBO Max's new sci-fi series, Raised by Wolves. I have to confess to you, I am a little bit sad today because this marks the final episode of our first season of the podcast. But I'm also really excited because if you have not heard yet, Raised by Wolves has been renewed for another season. Definitely a good thing for a number of reasons. I am very excited because I genuinely really love this show. But mostly after having taken a week to digest the finale and then rewatch all of the other episodes again and that finale one more time, all I have are questions. I don't know what's going to happen with mother and father. I don't know how their relationship would continue if they do survive this bizarre experience of the end of it, if their roles have reversed in a way that will significantly change the way their relationship functions and the way they might relate to other characters. I am a little scared of a giant flying serpent. That doesn't sound like fun to deal with. You know, I want to see what happens with Campion. Is he going to rise to the occasion and actually be able to lead with the lessons that mother and father have given him? Or is he, in the face of an unimaginable stress for most of us, going to maybe kind of crumble or revert inward? We don't know. But even though the season one's finale may have left us a little confused as to where the show is going, as you know, this companion podcast is here to, at the very least, help you understand some of the real-life tech, science, and history that inspired the series. And since we've all now had a little bit of time to digest season one, we thought we should look back at all of it and discuss the psychology at the core of Raised by Wolves, particularly how this show's vision of the future makes us consider whether or not we'd be ready for anything like the events that the show depicts. If we're being honest, most people have probably only skimmed the surface of what their minds can withstand. We throw around terms like trauma and PTSD in our everyday lives, but in truth, we often apply these very serious concepts to the simplest of obstacles, like holiday shopping or arguing with a clueless barista, and it becomes kind of a joke, and those words lose a little bit of their meaning. But to deal with the cataclysmic shifts that sci-fi often forces us to imagine, having our faith shaken, seeing our way of life crumble, or literally witnessing our planet wither and die— 
A typical human in 2020 would have to undergo the kinds of psychological changes that most people would consider utterly unthinkable. And at the end of the day, that is what Raised by Wolves is about, dealing with unfathomable events. Whether it's an android heartbroken over a living weapon, an atheist soldier finally hearing the voice of God, or a child who's beginning to suspect that their robot mother might actually be an improvement over biological parents, the characters on this show are doing their best to mentally navigate a mind-blowing version of our future. Which leads us to the question of the day. From what we see on Raised by Wolves, is humanity in any way prepared for what the future has in store for us? Before we plumb the depths of Raised by Wolves' psyche, we invited show creator Aaron Guzikowski back on the podcast one last time this year to understand how he crafted the complicated psychology of his characters and what they might tell us about humanity as a whole. As it turns out, Aaron had to examine his own life and the world around him in new ways to give Raised by Wolves the proper mental state. We've talked a lot about androids, but like the humans on the show experience a bananas array of things and very intense things and very traumatic things, just as minor examples being raised by a robot or traveling in stasis for a decade and having this weird, surreal 13 years of your life where you were conscious but not really acting. Do you think a lot about the psychological effects that these events would have on any of the human characters in the show as you're writing? Sure. Yeah. I mean, thinking about, you know, the shared simulation and and what that would be like and, you know, how that would affect you psychologically. And especially in the the case of the character Paul, he's brought into the shared simulation. He's not aware of the fact that the two people who are going in with him are not his parents, but he's in a simulation. So he's been told everything's going to be a little bit different. And so he just kind of accepts it. And there's something very, you know, interesting about that idea, that acceptance, that uh, that allowance to let these people into his life, even though there's something odd about them. He knows there's, you know, something wrong. So, yeah, I think psychologically, just thinking about sleep and, you know, dreams and how all these things affect how we feel in our, you know, waking lives. I mean, you know, what would it really be like to be asleep for 13 years and then wake up? The psychological issues inherent in that are crazy. You know, uh, it's going to be a hell of a trial and error. You also are a father, and there are, you talked about Paul's psychological experience, and I'm wondering how much of being a parent really informs and drives the way you handle kids specifically, but really everybody in Raised by Wolves. Definitely. I think just, you know, observing my own kids and, you know, just knowing how complicated it is to raise a child and that they all come out completely different. No child is alike. And so each one is its own kind of puzzle that you have to kind of, uh, and you'll never fully figure it out. And meanwhile, they're trying to puzzle you out at the same time. And they're never really going to fully figure you out either. And, And that's kind of the weird, almost tragedy of it all. But to think about doing that while thinking like an android, you know, thinking about things really coldly and just like calculating. You look at a child and you, you see a child and they're cute and they're, they do fun stuff, but you never really think of them as just like a small adult. You're always working towards this end goal. You're trying to create this, not a machine, but you know, a functional human being who's gonna be able to, uh, you know, fight his way through the world or, or, or love his way through the world or whatever the case might be. You have to really extrapolate that out of the thing that you're actually seeing before your eyes, this undeveloped child. 
And when you are a child, everyone's reading you these stories and talking about animals and how great everything is. And the animals are talking and we're friends with the animals. And if I was an android, I would be like, listen, sit down. They don't talk. Most of them are miserable. You know, we're murderers where we kill and eat animals, you know, and I don't know what to tell you. It's just like, that's what we are. That would seem the most logical thing to do. Tell them the exact truth about everything as soon as possible. But that's not really what we do. We, we try and make it a magical childhood. It's an illusion, right? I mean, so I think, you know, I make a TV show. I guess I, I, love, I love illusion. It's all about illusion. <laughs> I'm not a parent, but I feel like you perfectly, at least from the layman's perspective, encapsulate, though, the challenge of parenting in showing two androids who can see the same situation have the same directive and they still come to different conclusions, right? Like that's what it is to like try to raise children. Absolutely, yeah. That's the whole thing. And then there's the partnership, I think, with mother and father. They're programmed to take care of the kids, but there's no real program in terms of how they're supposed to relate with one another. They're supposed to be partners, but they don't have a program that says you two need to love each other or do this and that or always agree or whatever the case might be. And so they have to really figure that out, you know, puzzle out what it means to be partners on this crazy task they're on. Do you think a show like this that is, it's hard sci-fi and it's in the future, but is it potentially going to help people like look at their own, their own stuff and understand themselves a little bit better? Yeah, because I think these androids, they don't take anything for granted. You know, they, they feel things and they try to understand why they feel them. They don't just say, okay, I'm a human being, I'm happy, and and when I do this, I'm sad, and I need to do these things in order to feel fulfilled. But the mother and father, they don't take that for granted. They're, why? Do I really need to do that? Do I need to be happy here? Uh, is being happy necessary? Or is being happy even a real thing? Or is that just a kind of human delusion, you know, uh, at work there? So, you know, I, I love the way they they're always trying to figure out what it is to be human as they themselves are are becoming more human. They weren't born that way. They're slowly taking on these emotions kind of one by one. And then they have to figure out, are the emotions they're taking on making them better parents or worse parents, better partner or worse partner? And they're always trying to analyze these things. And they can talk about them in ways that humans usually don't. You know, do I need to be happy? You know, what is the pursuit of happiness? You know, it is it a recipe for sadness? Or, you know, if I don't pursue happiness, will I, you know, have a better chance of being happy? How does that all work? And I just love the way they, they analyze things that can't really be analyzed. So this is the season finale of our podcast, which makes me wonder what you hope that viewers are going to take away from this first season of Raised by Wolves. I think, you know, on a very base level, the importance of the family unit and whatever form it may take, human relationships, that's everything. That's the glue that holds us together. And, you know, at the end of the day, the whole human race is a large family, a huge, large, dysfunctional family. And getting that to work is the key to everything. And then maybe things like Earth is a great place. Try and make it work because that planet that looks so great, that's way out there. All the problems we have here are going to be waiting for you uh, when you get there. Try and fix the broken problem, uh, you know, because I think as humans, we want to always start fresh. You know, I think that would be the lesson. Try and work with what we got. We already got one of the best planets available, probably the best planet available to human beings that we can see and we can see pretty far. So I would imagine that you know, just appreciate what you got 
and try and make it work and don't try and go to Mars. It's just a recipe for disaster. And I know it's fun, the idea to send a rocket to Mars and, and maybe maybe there's cool stuff there. I don't know, but uh, I don't think we're going to live there. So we should fix this place. One point Aaron makes that's especially important to Raised by Wolves is the power of looking at the world through the eyes of an android. By removing ourselves from our typical human attachments and embracing the often clinical worldview of a fundamentally unsympathetic being, Raised by Wolves lets viewers see life as a simple task of fulfilling one's mission. Of course, when that mission involves raising humanity's final hope, things get a little bit complicated. But the ability to see children as small adult humans as they are in the series still leaves us with an understanding of the growth that they require to survive. We all know that a show like Raised by Wolves is, at its heart, escapism. But perhaps forcing us to consider how we would react in these far-fetched scenarios, it kind of gives us a mental dress rehearsal for what we would do if our own world went topsy-turvy. Thankfully, today's guest is not only an expert in his field, he is also a big enough nerd to explain it in terms of hypersleep and aliens. Dr. Ali Matu is a cognitive behavioral therapist and licensed clinical psychologist whose YouTube channel, The Psych Show, helps people like you and me understand concepts that range from panic disorders to Tourette syndrome. Formerly an assistant professor at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center in New York City, Ali is now a co-host of PBS's Self-Evident, and he has appeared as an expert on shows including Netflix and Vox's The Mind Explained, Anxiety, HBO's Doctor Commentaries, and A&E's The Employables. If all of that were not enough, he is also on the board of The Story Collider, where everyone from experts to average people can share personal stories about science. And most importantly, he is a huge sci-fi geek who loves talking about the psychology of characters traveling between planets and dealing with killer robots. So as you'll hear, after watching the entire first season of Raised by Wolves, he had plenty to say about the many motives, fears, and learnings of the show's incredibly complex characters. So Raised by Wolves shows us this moment of humanity in the far-flung fictional future on the brink of extinction. The world's environment has been ravaged. What historically are the psychological responses that we know of that people have had when they see their culture or their environment irrevocably destroyed? You see a lot of the the good, bad, and ugly side of our uh, psychology play out. In terms of the good, um, we saw this after 9-11. A lot of people were coming together. A lot of communities were uniting to support each other, not just in uh, New York City. People felt more a sense of national unity, and that is something that definitely can happen. Something When there's a crisis like this, it's a little bit easier to engage in altruism and, and helping behavior. If I don't help my neighbor, they might it might be on me. So you feel a bit more personal responsibility in these times of crises to help each other. We've seen that with this year's pandemic. That's kind of on, on the good side. On the bad side, especially when there's scarcity or perceived scarcity, people can do a lot of weird stuff. 
if you don't have all the good information and if you're not sure what to do, people can hoard, people can take resources away from others who might actually need it. And then on the ugly side, when we start to paint other groups as not human or less than human, it becomes very easy to commit heinous acts of violence, aggression, mass murder against people. And we've seen that in times of massive crisis as well, whether it's war or famine. It can come very easy to blame a certain group of people for your problems. And if you start using language about them being savage or less than, then it becomes very easy to take out your anger, your frustration on those people. The moment we start doing that, we're in for trouble. Something's wrong. There's a feeling inside me. Like everything hurts. Yes. And I'm so sorry for that. I'm going to remove all the memories of our time together. I don't want to hurt anymore. This kind of leads to another aspect of it that I want to talk about, which is we often, as a, a global species, will look historically at like the physical effects long term, whether that be to people or places, environments, et cetera, of big issues like war or genocide or a natural disaster. But what are the long-term psychological effects of the people that have gotten on the other side of it? Trauma isn't about seeing something horrific, although it often comes with that. Trauma is about when your belief in yourself, in other people, or the world is seismically changed. When you've seen something or you've done something that really conflicts with some of your big beliefs about how the universe works, when that happens, that's a trauma. That's a traumatic thing. And when people have gone through something like this and and they struggle with those beliefs, they struggle with the memories, the experiences of it, we see a lot of that in the show when people are remembering the war that ravaged Earth. That's where some of the ideas of post-traumatic stress can come from. On the other hand, people can also grow from these experiences. So post-traumatic growth is this newer idea where through the struggle of these massive changes in your life or in the world, it can lead people to have new values, new priorities, their, their lives can definitely change. And we see this in the show as well. Our um, Two of our atheist-turned-believers slash impersonators <laughs> sort of realize that, okay, we're in this, and they spend more than a decade in The Sim, and they sort of become parents, um, and they sort of develop this relationship for this child whose parents they murdered. You can kind of understand how having spent so much time and being indoctrinated with these different ideas, you might start to reprioritize what's important to you. The war in your mind is over. You're now in this new role. Maybe you do develop um, a new priority for family that, that maybe wasn't there before. So paradoxically, both of these things can actually happen at the same time when there is this 
cataclysmic change. You can both massively struggle with it and how you have changed and how the world can change. And you can develop a completely new way of approaching life. So you can both grow and struggle with it often at the same time. You were orphaned. Is that why you became a child soldier? What happened to your parents? Did they abandon you or did they die in the war? It doesn't matter. They're gone. And yet you carry that pain. Hmm? Is that part of your program? Making you shrink? The past informs every decision a human makes. And every choice you've made has served your own self-interest. Actually, my wife and I came here to save my son. Your son? And now what? You think you have what it takes to be a good parent? It can't be that hard. You figured it out. No, my creator did. I am what he programmed me to be. Obviously, this whole show is about the chosen humans moving to Kepler-22b. And we have talked to astronomers and astrophysicists about how just huge and gnarly a task that would be from the logistical standpoint. But it's got to be psychologically a whole other deal that, like, the science is hard But the concept of I am leaving everything I know behind, everything every generation before me has known behind, to go to someplace 600 light years away where we know nothing, like, what is that psychologically? Yeah, there's so much stuff there. What we see in the show is some really great ideas. There's the arc approach which is uh, putting people into some type of stasis and and keeping them mentally active. Then there's also the frozen embryo approach, which I think is kind of the easiest because then you don't need life support on the ship. There's a a lot of challenges to any long-term space travel. I mean, we're struggling with how do we get people to Mars? And one of the other big things we as a species are really trying to figure out is How do we deal with no longer seeing our planet and seeing nature? So for some reason, humans just do better when we see nature. There's been studies that have looked at people who are recovering from surgeries. And if they see a picture of nature versus a picture of a city in their hospital recovery room, they recover better when they see nature, this idea of biophilia. The number one pastime of astronauts, whether they've been on the International Space Station, whether they've been on the moon, is looking at Earth. Looking at Earth has been something that is profoundly healing and helps people to connect with a sense of meaning and purpose and to feel a bit more connected to their loved ones. So what happens, let's forget about Kepler for a moment, what happens when you go to Mars? What happens when all we see is terrain that is um, quite literally of an alien nature? Those are going to be really big challenges. And we honestly don't know what would happen if you're a child who grows up on Kepler-22b. Something that, that NASA is working on is using VR and other ways of keeping astronauts feeling connected to Earth. But for anyone who grew up on Earth and is now transported to another planet, just not seeing nature is going to be um, quite difficult.
Campion isn't happy. He's probably feeling insecure. It's pretty common when a new baby comes into the picture. The other kid gets jealous of all the attention. I'll get over it. I want to pivot a little bit to child development. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Campion's life is obviously spent on a pretty much deserted planet with two androids. His life is pretty exclusively toil and this sort of very strange, minimal family. But he's also very rebellious and angry, even though, like, he's... It's not like we would think of, you know, a kid on Earth. Like, of course you don't want to do this because you see this other thing that you want instead. He doesn't see anything else. He's just kind of working through his stuff. Would a child that doesn't know anything but sort of a survival subsistence level existence be self-aware enough to still do those sort of classic child development things of, like, boundary testing and rebelling and, you know, going through their sass back phase, et cetera? So every child is always going to be exploring boundaries. It's it's one way we have of understanding what's safe and what's not. What kids often do, like if they're quite literally, if they're exploring an environment and they find a cliff, like, you know, these giant whole things that we see, which apparently go down the whole planet. <laughs> that was a cool reveal yeah. in episode 10. But if you go towards these large craters, most kids, as they go close to that, they'll feel anxious, they'll feel scared, and they'll look back at their parent. And if their parent is super calm and okay, the kid will move even more forward. And if the parent looks concerned and is alarmed, most of those kids are going to back up. And so that is one of the ways in which Every child explores their environment and understands what's safe and what's not. The same thing would play out on Kepler-22b as long as mother and father have some of that programming built in. And what's cool about the show is we see two pretty compassionate parents for the most part. I mean, mother, yes, (laughs) is a weapon of mass destruction. This is true. She is also a relatively good mother to the children that she cares for. Now, does rebelliousness work the same way? Yeah, so part of it is cultural, like how much rebelliousness is expected. So in the United States, definitely, it's pretty normative for teenagers to be playing with their identity, pushing limits with their parents, to be testing all that stuff out. In some other cultures, that's much less common. So that's going to depend, again, on that family and the community that's growing up on Kepler-22b. One other thing I want to ask you about child development is how, obviously, here in the U.S. and in a lot of parts of the world, like, we have this sort of really, really romanticized view of what childhood should be. And it comes with certain milestones. And for some people, that's like birthdays, but there are also achievement milestones, like graduating from, you know, a certain level of school or like, you know, meeting some goal as a kid. This is not a world (laughs) where where they're doing a lot. I did not see a single birthday cake appear. Um, There weren't any like cute little wrapped gifts with the curly Q ribbons. How does a life without those kinds of, of milestones of joy and mirth impact a child psychologically? 
I'm really glad you mentioned these sort of markers that we often have, whether it's graduation or birthdays and, and things like that. A lot of it comes down to developmental milestones. So when people have uh, children, they're oftentimes very aware of developmental milestones. Things like a baby flipping over or learning how to crawl, learning how to walk. And then after a few years, we sort of stop monitoring developmental milestones. But that's really what child development is about. It's about when we expect kids to be able to do certain things on their own. So on Earth, not Kepler-22b, we look at things like being able to separate from parents for a prolonged period of time, being able to learn how to write, being able to read, being able to have a sleepover at a friend's and, and like deal with emotional conflict with your friends, being able to make friends and friendships. All of these things are the big stuff that child developmental psychologists look at is what are the expectations? When do kids develop these things? How is culture impacting that? What are things that we can do to help kids achieve these milestones? What are things that might make it harder to achieve those milestones? On a place like Kepler-22b, we would have a lot of similar milestones, developmental milestones, and a lot of them would be incredibly different. So things like being able to manage your emotions, being able to interact with a small social group, being able to overcome some of the conflict that happens in that small social group, all of that stuff would kind of mirror child development here. But the other things that would be different, especially when I look at the home depicted in Raised by Wolves, there aren't a lot of books. There isn't a lot of reading or writing. But what there is, is a lot of understanding and navigating that environment. So on a place like Kepler-22b, I think Campion, the same skills we probably use for literacy, he is probably using to navigate the environment, to understand different plants and tracks and markings, uh, reading his environment. So that part of development would be vastly different. Still using the same neuropsychological mechanisms, but they're being implemented in a very different way. We must press on. The stolen children wait for us to save them, and save them we will. Praise the soul. Praise the soul. And as the highest ranked cleric after Ambrose, I intend to hear your advice on how to do that. Who put you in charge? This man heard the voice of Saul last night. He saved us from the throne of a faithless commander. I say he's a prophet. Do I speak for all of us when I say this man's advice is our command? That is not how the line of succession works. So meanwhile, we also see the show's Mithraic immigrants trying, instead of kind of going and just starting from scratch in a new place, they're trying to bring all of their social order and their mores with them. And of course, that kind of self-destructs pretty quickly. Why are humans so attached to these ideas of like hierarchies of power and organizing their their social structures in this way? And are there instances where those get tossed to the wayside and like there's a better thing that comes after? What's really interesting is... We are so wired for that. Babies in their first year of life begin to understand 
the social structures around them. Babies are able to read power very easily. And why are we so wired to see the hierarchy, navigate that hierarchy? I think that gets back to the existential question of what makes humans humans. And it gets back to our ability to work together in large teams. That's the biggest evolutionary advantage we have. When you start to get beyond 20, 50, 100 different life forms, which tends to be the limit of most other species uh, of their ability to cooperate, once you get beyond that, you have to have hierarchy. And anyone who's been on a really chaotic web meeting (laughs) or a really (laughs) bad conference call (laughs) understands the need for hierarchy. Because if you don't have some type of order, when you get to a certain size of people, it just becomes too chaotic. And so that's our greatest strength. It is also what is one of our greatest weaknesses. Because never before, to this degree, have we had to deal with our own tribalism. It's this thing that is very innate in us. We like our groups. We want to preserve our groups. We want to work together to advance our groups. And we have a very strong suspicion of other groups. It takes a lot of time and contact and empathy and understanding to overcome those things. But that's largely how we've worked. And we worked in these small tribes, which relate to these larger communities, which relate to these larger identities. The problem we have now is that we've created a world where everything we do impacts each other. And we have to work together to overcome a lot of these problems that we have, whether it is climate change or a pandemic. We have to overcome our big tribal differences in order to solve these. And the great warning of shows like Raised by Wolves is if we don't do this, our planet's lost. If we aren't able to overcome our differences in beliefs, which is where this show starts, we're not going to solve these larger problems. And then we're, we're in a very dangerous course. Do we naturally just have a proclivity for conflict? Or is there always some jerk in the mix that has to be the rabble rouser that gets everybody into that conflict? Like, why can we humans not just chill with each other? (laughs) Uh, There's good news and bad news there. The good news is if you look at the very big picture, violence has actually come down. So the average human walking around on Earth is much safer than the average human walking around the earth 500 years ago and 1,000 years ago. So in the big scheme of things, earth is a safer place for humans than it used to be. Now, at the same time, you're right. There might always be some jerk who ruins it for everyone. And this speaks to a few big challenges that we're experiencing right now. We work best when there is ideological diversity in a team. And everyone in that team feels safe enough to share diverse perspectives. One of the most dangerous things for a team is something called groupthink. When everyone rallies around 
one leader doesn't question their recommendations or their choices, a lot of disasters can happen as a result of that. The space shuttle Challenger explosion, uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion happened because of groupthink. So good teams need diversity of perspectives and need to feel safe to share those perspectives. But that's hard. And another big trend that's been happening in many parts of the world is we're we're getting more aligned with people that think very much the same way as us in person and also online. And I fear deeply for our ability to navigate conflict and to be able to work through conflict and to be able to hold on to the problems we might have with other people and the ways they see the world and be able to have productive conflict that we need to overcome these problems. And that might give way to this atheist, mithraic divide we see where those two sides are almost, they can't negotiate anything. They're just too polarized. I, I fear greatly for polarization in our world right now. I'm actually really, really happy you talked about polarization because I want to touch on that. There are two stories that run in this show, right? We have Campion Sturgis, who is a man who was born as a Mithraic and then becomes an atheist zealot. And then Caleb slash Marcus, who starts out as an atheist child soldier and has, you know, this conversion almost to Mithraic fundamentalism once he's on Kepler-22b, what psychological factors are at play in those things where someone switches sides so hardcore at that point and completely shifts their worldview? I loved both of those arcs. If we look at Marcus slash Caleb, he's a great example of the role of community and how much people around you can have an impact on, on your beliefs. So he not only spends all those years in the sim having to learn the customs, the ideology of uh, the Mithraic religion, but over time, that definitely has an impact on him. Now, what leads him to believe that he is hearing soul? I don't know. I have a theory that there is something going on on this planet, whether it's the vegetation or the air, the oxygen, that is causing people to think a little bit differently. We know that some hallucinogenic compounds do loosen up some of the neural pathways in your brain so you can make connections that you didn't have previously. So maybe some of that stuff is at play. Like... (laughs) <laughs> They're all microdosing on Kepler twenty two B. No, I, 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 I'm going on record right now. Uh, that will be revealed season two, Raised by Wolves. You heard it here first, folks. But yeah, I, I think it's a combination of these things. It's all that time spent in this community, learning these values, and then being put on this planet in a position where he has to explain something that's unexplainable. And the only explanation that really is coming to him is in the form of, uh, of the Mithraic religion. Now, on the other hand, my theory for Campion Sturges is he's an individual who definitely grew up with the Mithraic religion, was indoctrinated in it, probably believed it. And then something probably happened that he wasn't able to negotiate. There was probably something that he witnessed that 
really conflicted with those things that he held so sacred. When those things are broken, people can have a big crisis of faith. And he might have dealt with that by leaving the religion altogether and actually working for the other side. So my guess is he experienced something that really seemed to conflict with the things that he was raised to believe. I allowed myself to be invaded, neglected my mission. My family, Campion, is now suffering because of my actions. This is causing me great distress. You needn't display emotion for my benefit. I know that, Carl. Then why are you doing it? My partner and I sometimes suffer from impulses not dictated by programming. <laughs> Have you ever come across such a condition? No. You are unique. I'd rather not be. I really have to wonder, are we really mentally ready for the future ahead of us, right? We comment through this show even on our reliance on technology and destructive weaponry and there's a lot of discussion about how the technology in this show keeps the Mithraics pure because they don't have to do the icky stuff and this whole thing gets wrapped in a lot of weird moral somersaulting and kind of really doing some pretzel tricks but do you ever notice that our interactions with technology are potentially harmful is there a place where we're doing it wrong and we're headed down a path that is ultimately not going to benefit mankind. I I think we're doing it wrong all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Our brain is slow to change. We approach filing our taxes the same way we approach being chased by a lion. You know, this, this like, (laughs) (laughs) this like fear response of like, run away, get to safety, avoid, sweat, sweat, sweat. We approach everyday stressors the same way our ancestors approach life or death situations. Our psychology is very slow to evolve. And yet our technology is very quickly adapting and changing. When we first invented the automobile, it took a long time before we invented seatbelts. And it took a lot longer time before we invented shatterproof windshields. And those things have saved a lot of lives. Uh, But they, they came with a lot of time. The difference now is we haven't invented all those seatbelts. We're still trying to figure out what the problem is. And yet our technologies evolve at a very fast rate. How do we deal with that? How do we slow things down? I don't know. But... This is where I actually find a lot of hope in science fiction for being able to reflect back and get us to think in a way that loosens us up from the way we see everyday life and gets us to think about these big picture questions. This is, I 100% believe this is why science fiction exists. That's why I'm glad shows like this are around so we can ask these questions. And hopefully someone listening who's working on this stuff slows down a little bit and thinks about how do I do this in a more humane way that uh, helps us and protects us. My last thing I want to ask you, and you've kind of already 
delved into this is if, given the fact that this is, for example, a very hopeful medium that has sprung up as a way to tell stories and examine these things, do you think humans are going to get better? Because, like, Race by Wolves shows us humans far in the future, very technologically advanced, who go to a new planet and just make a huge mess of it and turn it into a war zone. (laughs) Do you think, even though our psychological evolution, as you've said, is quite slow, that we will get to a point where that won't be what we automatically create? Or are we kind of going to be stuck in this pattern and we got to come at it a different way? I remain hopeful and optimistic. When people think about, like, why haven't we encountered alien life, there's an explanation that comes up that scares me and also gives me a lot of hope. And that's the hurdle hypothesis, that maybe there is this hurdle that comes along with space exploration and the ability to contact life in other parts of the galaxy that also introduces an existential threat to the species, whether that is atomic warfare or that is some type of weapon of mass destruction we can't even imagine right now, something like Mother, or is it some type of challenge of having to overcome our tribalism? You know, there there might be these big hurdles that we have in store for us if we want to have any hope of becoming a multi-planet species or make contact with other alien life. I think what's going to happen is we're either going to overcome that hurdle or we're not. I think these next few years are actually going to be quite telling in what direction we're going in. Because the problems that we're now beginning to experience as a species, they're all interdependent problems. Whether it's a pandemic, whether it's climate change, whether it's famine, whether it's refugee crises or extremism or nationalism, all of these challenges that we're facing, they're not things that any one group of people can solve. So if we're able to navigate these, overcome some of these, I think we're in great shape. With that, it looks like this season of Raised by Wolves, the podcast has come to an end. By picking up where the series left off, we hope that you were able to get some additional insights from some angles you might not have considered while watching the show. We absolutely want to thank Raised by Wolves creator and writer Aaron Guzikowski for providing us with so many enriching insights throughout this podcast and to all of our brilliant guests, including Dr. Ali Matu, for nerding out with us today over sci-fi psychology. Thanks so much to HBO Max for giving us folks at iHeartRadio the opportunity to make this incredibly fun and cool podcast. But certainly, most of all, we want to thank you who have listened to our podcast and spread the word about it after watching and falling in love with such an incredible new show from HBO Max. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. And with Raised by Wolves heading into season two, hopefully we will get the chance to bring you more experts explaining the science, technology, history, and psychology behind Raised by Wolves. Until then, thanks again, and we hope that you keep looking to the future with a curious mind. Raised by Wolves, the podcast is a production of HBO Max and iHeartRadio, hosted by me, Holly Fry. 
I am lucky enough to have an amazing team that works on this show with me that make it not only easy, but an absolute delight. The podcast is produced by the astonishingly delightful Ethan Fixell, written and researched by my lost brother, perhaps, in all of our shared interests, Chris Crovaton, and engineered, edited, and mixed by the spectacularly talented, skilled, and patient James Foster. If you haven't already subscribed, rated, or reviewed Raised by Wolves, the podcast, please do so on the iHeartRadio app, HBO Max, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to watch the series itself on HBO Max. You now have all of the episodes to go back and enjoy. 